Hey guys, this is Randy Palmer. Thank, welcome to the Family Strong Podcast. Well, welcome. Glad to be here. We're going to jump right in today. I'm going to be sharing parts of my story today and going through some of my childhood, some of my upbringing. If you've heard any of my other podcasts or if you're someone who's working with me now, you know you know the role that um, my childhood played in, in my work now. And that seems to be the, the case for a lot of people who go through things and work in various industries, you can usually trace it back to um, things that they've learned, things they've gone through in their life. So I want to touch on the power of families today and how I came to this realization, how I came to the belief that if you can, you should involve your family every step of the way, not just in your recovery, but in your life. And we don't, and there's various reasons we don't, and sometimes those reasons are appropriate, depending on the situation. But for the most part, let's take something like starting a business, for example. Over the years, as I've started various businesses and gone through different cycles of of plenty and poverty, and I work with people, I look back on these situations and I think, man, I should, have, I should have asked my family for more feedback. I should have inspired my family to take some of these steps. I should have taught certain people in my family or my community how to do certain things and I should have learned better from some of these people how to do certain things. But what did I do? I competed with them, I hid from them, I avoided them, or I bragged to them, or tried to impress them. Does this make sense? Does this sound familiar to you? That's just one concept, so that's business startup. How cool would it be if you're starting a business right now, or you currently have a business, if you could meet on a regular basis with those that you love the most and that love you the most. And if everybody actually took the time and set it aside to focus on you and the success of your business as their priority in that moment, would that not be amazing? So that's just one category. We could go through a whole list of things. Some are more surface level, like perhaps business management. It may not be as emotional as suicidality or mental illness, although (laughs) the emotions are very similar, and some might disagree. Some might say, man, I I was really suicidal or questioning who I was as a person during the first few years of a startup. Or, man, when I started to lose everything, I was really desperate. I could have really used that communication with my family and with my community. So, the point here is that when we break social norms and we, and we start looking at things differently and start utilizing our families more effectively, it, 
it can be applicable on any level across the board on any topic. It can be inheritance. It can be health concerns. It can be goal setting. It can be building a house, community involvement, whatever you want it to be. So what led me originally to addiction? Because as I trained, when I got older, as I trained in, trained in an intervention, as an interventionist, I went straight towards addiction. And that wasn't always easy for me. In fact, there's been times in my life where I just don't want to tell you. I don't want to share my story about addiction all the time. Sometimes I've wanted to just move on from that part of my life. And I have in, in many ways. But I also recognize that sharing this story, relating with people, going back to the principles that got me to where I am will always be a part of my life. But sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's messy. So when I was a young boy, I think I can remember I was three or four years old, my mother would, she would get migraines. My mother had been adopted. Uh, she had a variety of, um, you might say, mental illnesses. I don't know. She was super, she was super loving with me and with our family. She would just get sad. It's like she never felt like she was doing good enough. Anyway, she would get in these cycles of, of getting headaches, and sometimes they were extreme. And she would, she would um, you know, go to her room and turn out the lights and just deal with this pain or this headache for days. Other times, she would just get super stressed and overwhelmed, and she would just kind of naturally fade back into that bedroom because she just needed a break. At those times, she called it a headache book. But I knew, even as a kid, mom just needs a break. So one of the first memories I have as, uh, as a nurturer, as a young boy, is like four years old, and my mother had passed out like she had done many times before. And I, you know, I'd bring her a blanket, and I would get her a drink of water. I'd pick her up. I'd, I'd help her get up and take her to her bed, and I'd sit there, and I'd talk to her for a little bit. Well, I was the youngest. I was the baby. I had two older brothers, two older sisters. They were in school. My father owned a construction company. He was working all the time. I, I witnessed um, ways that I could help my mother, that I could help her cope, and I assisted her in that. I also witnessed ways that my father and my siblings and even those in our community at times really struggled to cope with my mom and the cycles that she had fallen into because everyone was felt like their hands were tied and that they were confused on how to help her. So that's one of my first experiences working with my mom. As I got older, uh, you know, still being close to her but starting to develop in my own person, uh, I developed some of my own challenges. One of the first ones was, um, you know, not feeling good enough. I, my father was fairly critical. He was hard on himself. Uh, he expected certain things from us. I always, I always wanted to impress him. And it's fun now that I'm older and that he's older. I feel like I impress him a lot. And he impresses me. He called me last week to go to his house to, to carry something heavy. And I was able to pick it up. And I'm strong. And I showed him how strong I am. And I impressed him, right? So everything has come full circle but I, I really started to question my true identity and my, my, my belief in who I am and what's the purpose. When it came to things like sports, 
I was shy and embarrassed. I was going to make mistakes. And again, all of these things are normal. But to me, it was, it was planting the seeds that would eventually lead me into a hard addiction. Um, it developed into social anxiety where I was afraid to go to church. I was afraid to order food at a restaurant. I was afraid to go into a grocery store to get a drink. I didn't want to be around people, didn't want to have to speak, didn't want to hear my own voice. Until I took a lower tab, got my wisdom teeth out, took a lower tab, and all of a sudden I could speak, I could be myself. And I thought, this must be the solution. So I started to dabble in drugs, started to experience with that. Uh, eventually that evolved into an everyday habit. Uh, a lot of money, a lot of wasted time, a lot of bad influences on other people in my community and doctors and everything else that I was doing to try to get opiates and get more of them and not get sick. But it was always a cycle. I had certain lines I wouldn't cross. Like I I never got arrested. I never went to jail. Um, I could have. I got, luckily, thank you to uh, Dan Chamberlain and letting me off a couple times. And who knows what he knew. But I was, I was lucky. By the skin of my teeth, I was able to escape some of those complications. And I was able to continue to support my habit. At 23 years old, I actually went to my parents and said, hey, I can't, I can't go five hours without taking drugs. And people always ask me, well, what was it? What was your rock bottom? Well, in an exception to not, you know, with, with a desire to not be rude to them, I, I don't believe in rock bottom. So I don't, I don't say that. At least I don't believe in the commonly accepted process at which people believe it takes to get one to rock bottom. But to answer that question, I tell them, I think I grew out of addiction. One of the things that helped me grow out of it is I remember I was sick and I was looking for some pills and I, I found some money and I called the people I knew and I tried everything I knew. I wasn't going to break into the pharmacy. I just needed to wait until Wednesday. It's like Saturday. So I lay around and mope and get sick and cry and whine and woe is me for four days. Finally, Wednesday gets around and I'm so happy call my my lady in town I was getting them from. She she had a prescription. I went over there. I got two of them. I came home. I did them as fast as I could. At the time, you know, we were, it was Oxycontin. We were crushing it and snorting it. And these things were expensive too. I, I think it was $60 a pill for an Oxycontin 80. And we were doing several of those a day, if not a handfuls. Um, but I sat on the couch and I thought to myself, is that it? Is that it? I waited four days. I did nothing else. I didn't work. I didn't accomplish anything. I didn't meet anyone. I didn't do anything. I waited four days for this, and I don't even feel any better. I didn't feel great. I did not feel a high. That was one of the first times where I started to look at it like, yeah, maybe this isn't worth it. So I went to treatment a few months after that, had this great family meeting with my family before I left, saw the power. I saw the power of family council. I saw the power. At least it, it hit me. You know, when we get together with our families, usually it's for a funeral, right, or a wedding or a birthday party. Typically, things come up, but at surface level things, the things that are really struggling, the things that are really affecting people on an individual level, 
they don't they don't typically get talked about at least not as a group they might get talked about with whispers over by the cake some of the ants might say something and some other whispers might be happening over by the you know the, the meat or whatever it might be but this was different i got together with my family and we talked about some real stuff it was me it was my addiction i'm going to rehab my dad told everybody it was somber my mom was crying she was still a mess my sisters were confused my brothers were mad and i loved it i loved every minute of it for one i knew i was changing my life two i immediately had a sense that what i had done to to decide to get help was good because it was starting to unite my family there's actually research out there that shows using especially for younger teenagers acting out and using drugs is resiliency in action meaning they're sometimes doing that to protect the rest of the family from other things that are going on and they see oh if i do this if i act out if i relapse everyone focuses on me and that takes the attention off of someone else that i love so that becomes a habit so i go to treatment we have this family meeting my family is involved a little bit in treatment i mean they they visited a couple times i had some other a lot of miracles great experience went to matter behavioral health in in mount pleasant utah 90 days came home lost completely lost i remember how vulnerable how vulnerable i felt walking around after being clean for a hundred days and calling up some old girlfriends and going to visit some old people at, at the easter day party and still walking around like man i'm 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 at risk <laughs> my family had no education about addiction they're like oh he's healed it's a miracle and i'm like walking into one of our uh, family dinners at christmas the next year telling them hey guys i just want to let you know it's not over for me like i still have these struggles i still have these moments where i have to make decisions sometimes those decisions are hard to make so i could use your prayers so i i reached out to them like hey continue this continue this effort this united effort of of working together on this because i'm not as well off as you think i am i'm still freaking lost my mom was still ha having a hard time she was still having headaches she was still self-medicating she was still dealing with her depression and, and and getting sick my dad was still working like crazy they still weren't getting along very well my brothers and sisters were still going on with their lives the best they could you know our family system had not changed even though i changed um, around that time i knew i needed something to, to shoot towards i needed a target i needed a goal because i was desperate so i was uh, born and raised in the in the lds church the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints i had not been very active from the time i was about 15 or 16 coming back to the social anxiety but i i knew that i needed to do something so i decided to set my sights to go on a mission and become a missionary for that church and and to serve the savior through that process and i was able to do it it was a miracle i don't know how they got me on the plane um, i probably under normal standards shouldn't have been able to be there but people are inspired and there is a thing called the spirit of the law and families 
can introduce that spirit better than anyone. So anyway, after I got home from that mission, which was great, just got to serve people. I, I worked with a lot of families there, implemented some systems, systems and structures that, that helped families grow together and work together. Uh, after I got home, I went to college. I went to Snow College for a minute, went to uh, Utah State for a while, went to the LDS Business College for a while, and it was there where I actually had a professor tell me, what are you doing here? I, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you want, you want to own a business, right? He says, the economy is out there. What are you doing sitting in a classroom? You just go, start. So I, I didn't complete my education in any specific field, and around that time, we had a baby, and, and I started just working to provide for my, for my family. I also always had these seeds in my heart of wanting to be involved in the addiction recovery industry. I wanted to start a rehab. I really wanted to help people. I'd started doing some things where some families would call me, and I'd start to help them, and uh, I guess you would call it interventions. Um, I learned in one of my first experiences not to lie to one of my friends and take him to a program and have a meeting and then try to leave him there. Told him it was just a visit because when we walked outside to leave, he was laying in the back of my truck hiding like a kid. And I knew he had a pretty good right hand because he'd punched me before. So I was fully expecting it at this moment. I was gonna, I was gonna duck like for a single leg, but he didn't. Luckily, he knew that he probably, he still wanted a ride, so <laughs> he didn't swing. But we left him there, and he spent one night there, and the next morning walked. And a cop actually picked him up, gave him a little money, took him to the bus stop. So there you go. That was one of the first experiences where I had exposed myself to other models of addiction and what, how not to approach some of these situations. What's interesting about that is we were even told from somebody who had been involved in addiction recovery for years and years and years to lie to him. And he still brings it up to this day. He's doing great now, but he still brings it up to this day. Remember when you lied to me? Like, yeah. He's like, dude, that's... I'm like, I know, man. I'm sorry. Anyway, going through these emotions of wanting to work with people, I grew up in the gravel business. I grew up in the construction industry. It came natural to me. And I was also turned off by the addiction recovery field in a lot of ways. I had worked at a program where the staff was, they were like bullies. Because some, the, some of the clients dump water on them. And just, I'd been in other programs where there was uh, no family involvement at all. And I always knew that was an element. I didn't know how big of an element. But it was something that I, I wanted to get involved in to some degree. I also felt like I should. But every time I looked at the industry and I saw the results and I saw people running around calling themselves addicts and the 12 steps and dual diagnosis and all of this stuff and all of these labels and all of these geniuses and all of this information and these textbooks and these people and this Across the board, I'm seeing, oh, there's really poor results. I'm also walking around with a little bit of anxiety and a lack of confidence because I, I lacked a formal education in mental health or in addiction. And I thought, how do I get into this space if I don't 
have the information that these people have, I also looked at it and said, why would I want to think like them? Why would I want to go learn what they're learning and do what they're doing if their results are so poor? Now, I'm not saying that these people are contriving or that this is done on purpose. I'm a spiritual guy. I've had some experiences. I'm a personal guy. I'm willing to research. I'm, I'm willing to do whatever's needed. But I never felt like, yeah, I should go to school and I should go start a rehab or I should get into, uh, go sit with these people and do what they do. It wasn't until I, I went and I learned of the model, uh, the invitational intervention process where you start with the family. And then you add resources if you need them, just like my family did. We started, we started together. The resource at that time was the treatment, and we kind of included them a little bit, not much. But when I got home, I was so lost, and so were they. I tell you, they didn't help. Nobody in my family gets any credit for me staying clean after I got home from rehab. Yes, those relationships were there. They were doing the best they could, but, but they had no education at all about what relapse looks like. What are the warning signs? What are the triggers? What's stress management? What about, what about aftercare? What about meetings? What about goal setting? Like, none of it was really, they had not experienced anything. They also, very few of them had, had made any changes on their own. They hadn't been working on their own stuff, so they were just as vulnerable personally as they was as they were before I left. So the family system and cycle, although I altered it slightly, had not changed much. But something happened one day. I ran into a guy, and when he saw me, it was so cool because this guy has a unique story, so unique, and I don't have time to get into it now. I was walking down a hallway, and when he saw me, he said, he pointed his finger at me, and he said, I can't remember your name, but I remember that I love you. And I remember thinking, you know, love is the key. Love is the element. These, these people that worked at this program where they were bullying the clients and some of these other people that were just so stressed and desensitized to what's going on, you know, I don't blame them, but... You can have an education and not have love. You can have an education and love, which is powerful. But what I realized is I have enough because I have a deep belief that anybody can change. And I'm optimistic. I believe in your family. I believe in you. I believe in your loved ones. Nobody can look at me and say that person will never change. If they do... In my mind, I'm thinking, it's too bad this person feels that way about themselves. It's too bad they feel that they can never change because they're just talking about their own belief about their self. I believe anyone can change. I don't know how. I don't know when. But that's not really up to me. Uh, it's my job to love them. It's my job to do things for them that leads them in the right direction. And it was through this, this breakthrough of the training with the families and realizing that love was the foundation and recognizing that if, I, that if we needed more, which we often will, 
we can get that. We can get treatment. We can get therapists. We can get medication. We can get coaches. We can get psychedelic, whatever you want. Like, it's available if it's needed. But it is not the primary foundation. The family, whatever that looks like for you, is the primary foundation for recovery. Because the person may or may not change, but if the family begins to look at it like this is an opportunity for everyone to change because this is everyone's addiction because we've all either contribute to it, contributed to it or allowed it or tolerate it or whatever it may be, what's happening in your family, everyone partially owns. And not just those of you that are here now. Your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-aunts, your great-uncles, cousins, all of it. Eventually our communities. It's all one great whole of responsibility and now accountability and especially opportunity. To summarize, when family members will break social norms, when they'll do things different, when they'll say, I think we should all sit at the family party in one spot and we should just talk about this together, they'll see that the power the lack of drama, the, the spirit of love, the spirit of connection, the, the, the deep, inherent connection that's formed through years and years and years of memory and emotion, right? That's what emotions do. Emotions attach us with memories. They help us remember experiences. This is why it can be so challenging for families, why it can be so difficult, why some families are just like, you know what? Yeah, there's a lot of crap going on. I don't want to deal with any of that. I just want this thing to go away. So, Billy, you go to treatment. And if that's where your family is at this time, that's where it is at this time. But I would question that person and say, and what does that mean for the future? Let's say Billy goes to treatment. He comes right back here and lives with you. What's the real opportunity here? Is it Billy or is it the person making these decisions, the father? What are his concerns? What are his insecurities? What's he hiding? What does he not want to confront? Across the board, if we can separate it from one or two people are responsible and, and everybody's carrying the blame and the shame and the guilt, and spread it out to, man, we've been through a lot. What do we have? What have we learned? You can't go through these challenges without like, like divorce and bankruptcy and, and loss of a child or a loved one or friends or transition wherever your family migrated from or addiction or mental illness. You can't go through these things and not come out stronger if you're all still together. Explain that to me. If you still run into these people, you still see them, you still call them, you still want a group text, 
And although you're, you're avoiding some things, which our whole freaking society is, so you're just being normal, you have strength. You have power at your fingertips. You have grit. You have resiliency. And these things are given to you as a weapon. And the universe, God, the spirit, the, the part of you, the little I am, that says, man, we can do better, is calling to you to, to increase those bonds, to connect those lines, to simplify your life so that you're not distracted, so that the things that are going on that aren't getting dealt with can be addressed, which in, empowers and enables the next generation to not repeat it again because we can't afford to have it repeated again. That's found through addressing these concerns and having these conversations openly. Sharing stories of triumph, of power, of migration, of past family history, and, and exposing some of these secrets and getting into these conversations the best you can. Then, and only then, if we're going to introduce a 50 or a 70 or $90,000 treatment program, should we send Billy anywhere? Because ultimately, who's going to be here for that person in 20 years? Who loves us and who do we love more than our families? Even if you hate your family, even if there's someone in your family that you hate with a passion, that hate was grown from the seeds of love from disappointment, from discouragement, from being let down with your own expectations. Hate can't grow that strong if there's nothing there. So those connections, those bonds are powerful. And I believe they're the only thing that's truly going to be enough. They're the only thing that's going to be enough. As, as time goes on, as we go through variations economically and um, whether it's natural disasters or whatever it might be, and our, our structures and societies begin to be changed as they already are with different cultures and crime rates and other things that are happening, the media the stuff that they're pushing into our homes and into our children's brains. As time goes on and as things happen, there's going to be a unifying effort where families are going to be coming together out of necessity. They're not going to see any other options. It's not going to be convenient enough just to schedule a therapy appointment and then go to your family party and say, I'm good. How's your new truck? Look at those wheels. No, it's not going to work. It's not going to be enough. We're going to need that code word. Me and my brother have this code word when we were little. We're at on the duck. There we are in our PJs looking at the sheets that have little ducks on them, and we made a, we made a pact to always be friends. And we had a code word. It's going to take that type. Of, it's going to take the relationships that go deeper and have more than just surface level. So if you're someone who is looking at this and you're thinking about your family and you're like, how do I do this? 
I can help you do it. I would encourage you to join the Family Strong Facebook group. I would encourage you to look into my Family Strong weekly training, which that's a paid subscription where we go through the steps of how to have these conversations, how to start the process along with worksheets and downloads and structures that you can at least start with. Or you can reach out to me personally and I will work with your family. Come into your home, I'll meet with you weekly. We'll include as many as we can. We'll go through these topics one by one. It's not therapy. I'm not a therapist. I'm not getting into the why. We're getting more into the what, what's happening, what are the systems, what are the cycles as issues arise that people feel like they need more personalized help or there's deeper trauma, then we can, we can facilitate those arrangements with third parties. But the foundation, the basic simple foundation, what we used to call family dinner, where people sit down and talk about real things, that's where we need to start. So look in the notes. You can contact me. I would love to meet with you guys and, and talk about some of these options. This is Randy Palmer with the Family Strong Podcast. Thank you for listening. I will see you in the next episode.